right, we're going to continue moving through a series we started near the beginning of the year, a series on the book of Joshua. And uh, this morning we're going to be diving into one of my, my favorite uh, stories from the Old Testament uh, from Joshua chapter 2. So, if you would, let's, uh, let's find uh, Joshua 2 in your Bibles. If you need a Bible, by the way, we have plenty here. They're free. Put your hand in the air and someone from the Connections team will bring it around to you. Otherwise, grab your own or uh, swipe, click, tap, turn, whatever you need to do to get to Joshua chapter 2. It's a little longer passage than we typically cover together, but I will ask, I'm not going to ask you to do it next week. We're going to have a really long passage, but this week I'm going to ask you guys to stand as we read together God's Word to honor that it's His Word and not our own, and that ultimately this is God's message to us. So Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you, before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please, swear to me by the Lord that, I, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. And we shall be guiltless. 
But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given us, given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Let's pray. Father, we're looking back centuries and, and millennia to events that happened so long ago, and yet they speak to us today. May we hear that. May we hear how you have worked in your people and in your creation for the sake of your goodness and your glory. In your hearts and our hearts to your words this morning. May my words be faithful to that and speak what only you would have me. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Yes, yeah, can be seated. Like I said, next week we are, we're going to cover chapters 3 and 4. I won't have you stand for all of that, as is our typical custom. And by the way, if you want to know where we're going, if you connect with us on uh, faithlife.com, there's a reading plan that's built into that, and you can stay on top of uh, what we're doing next on Sunday morning, and so you can read the scriptures ahead of time, study them, think on them, meditate on them, and, and be prepared uh, to, to kind of wrestle with the text in your mind on Sunday morning. Um, ultimately, believe that this is God's word for us, and so the more we saturate it into our minds and hearts and souls, the better. So we're, we're digging into this story of, of Rahab, and it's an interesting story because it kind of catches us off guard in a lot of ways. Where we've been up to this point, we have the Israelites, the, the people that God chose, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they've come out of Egypt. Because of their sin and their wickedness, they were forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years after leaving the slavery of Egypt before God would give them the land that he had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob, namely the land of Canaan, which we think of as Palestine and Israel and that region of the world today. And God had promised to give it to them, but he waited 40 years until a new generation that had not rebelled against him was raised up and ready to inherit the land. And so the Israelites stood on the banks of the Jordan River, on the east side of the Jordan River, ready to enter into the land of Canaan. They had already defeated a couple kings east of the Jordan River, mentioned in this passage, the king Sihon and the king Og, and they had defeated them and destroyed them, and God had incorporated that land east of the Jordan River into the territory he was giving them. And we talked about last week how it was so important for the Israelites to come together, even though some of them knew that the territory that God was giving them was already in their possession. It would have been really easy for them to, uh, to cut bait and, and just be done with this mission. No more war for them. They already had their own, but they were committed and they were all in and they were going to go together. All 12 of these tribes, these clans of Israel, were going to enter into the land of Canaan and they were going to take out the Canaanites. And so that's where we leave off and they're about ready to enter. Joshua has told them three days, three days and we're going to enter the land. And before they do it, 
Joshua wants to send out some spies. And that's where we pick up in chapter 2. Joshua, the son of Nun, the, the, the leader of the Israelites, Moses' successor, he sends out two men secretly from Shittim, which, by the way, is my favorite Bible place name. Because when you double the last consonant and add the I-M, that is the Hebrew plural. You know, so sometimes we say like cherubim, but sometimes we just say cherubs. So you know, we could render this place differently. It also oftentimes has a, definitive, a definite article on the front, so the Shittim. And then you can kind of go from there why I find this place name so great. And yet they, they never render it that way in English. Never. I don't know why. Um, Someday, I'll translate my own Bible, and it'll just be a very literal translation. Um, no. So, so they're, they're sitting on the east side of the Jordan River in a, in a place called Shittim, and he sends out these spies secretly, and he says, go view the land, especially Jericho. In other words, Jericho in particular is their first target, and we're going to get into that in chapter 6, but Jericho is kind of their, is a city that's not too far across the Jordan River. It's a significant city, and it's going to be their first target point of attack in their conquest. And so in particular, they're not going to go all up and down the land. When they sent out spies during Moses' day, it took them 40 days to go across all of Canaan. Here they have a three-day window. They're really focused on Jericho and probably the area immediately surrounding Jericho. And as soon as they go out, it says, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So the first thing we know is that these were bad spies. Right? Because verse 1, they're sent out secretly. Verse 2, the king's like, whoa, there's spies here. All right, so they are not doing a very excellent job. Not, this was a new generation, not a lot of military history maybe. They, they've not been trained up well. And, and there's really a comedy of errors in this passage. And yet nothing evil is going to befall them. So, so first of all, we, we find out that they have been discovered right off the bat. And they make their way to a prostitute's house. And again, this is probably not the best place for a a faithful person of God, right? Um, In fact, as we look at Israel's history, uh, very often the men of Israel brought the downfall of Israel by going and uh, getting involved with pagan women, um, marrying into or getting prostitutes or uh, religious prostitutes from among the pagan women. And it was the first step in them starting to worship pagan deities and pagan gods and being a downfall. And so there's a lot here that could go wrong. And yet it doesn't. There's a lot that could possibly get screwed up here. There's a lot of mistakes that are being made, and yet God's hand seems to be providentially taking care of them and taking charge of them. That said, it's not necessarily all that crazy an idea that they went to a prostitute's house. The reason why I say it's not all that crazy an idea that they went to a prostitute's house is because if you're a spy and you are trying to be secretive, if you're trying to be sort of underground, you're going to want to possibly go to the kinds of places where no one knows your name. You're going to want to go to the places where a secret is kept very well and where there might be a lot of travelers and there might be all different walks of life who can give you information. So from an 
from an intelligence standpoint, from a military intel standpoint, going to a prostitute's house might not have been the stupidest thing in the world. It, from our modern eyes, we read that as like, whoa, what are they doing there? But from a military intel perspective, this might have been a very smart move. Um, the kind of people that might have been in and out of Rahab's house may have been very, very helpful in getting a feel for what is the lay of the land, uh, what kind of uh, sense, what kind of feeling do the people on the ground have here. And again, if anyone's going to be good at keeping a secret, it's someone whose business depends on keeping a secret, right? So while we might not like the idea that there are prostitutes' house, it may have had a strategic value. But again, the, the king is already aware of the fact on the first night, apparently, that they're there, that they have been spies to search out the land. And so they come to Rahab. We don't know how he found Rahab. Was it his first stop? Were they really that bad that he knew exactly where they went to? Or, or had they checked a few places? But certainly it didn't take them long. They found Rahab's place, and they say, hey, where are these guys? Bring them out. We know that they came to you. And what we hear is that Rahab had already taken steps to hide them. So she was aware, presumably, that they had been found out, that there was a chance that people were going to come looking for them, and she took steps to protect them. And tells the king, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And then, and when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. So she lies. We'll come back to that. Um, she lies to protect them and covers them up. And you can imagine that these uh, servants of the king or, or whatever they are uh, are probably encouraged by this because we read the next verse. Uh, two verses later, the men pursued them on the way of the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So she told them they left just before they were about to close the gates. They get out to the gates. The gates are still open. They're thinking to themselves they couldn't have been gone very long. They're probably thinking to themselves, we've got a great opportunity here. These guys are toast. And she, of course, encouraged them in that way. Meanwhile, she takes them, she's hid them under some stalks of flax, which may have been an unusual thing to hold at your home in that time. Um, and what she does next is shocking. Because she comes to the men... She sent her, their, their pursuers away. She kind of takes them out of hiding, and she says in verse 8, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Rahab's speech here is incredibly Profound. It's incredibly significant on multiple levels. First of all, she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. When you see that capital L with, with the small caps, O-R-D, Lord, that is our way typically of rendering in English the divine name. Some Bible translations actually put the divine name in there, and it's Yahweh. Yahweh was the name that the God of the universe, the God of heaven, the God of earth, the God of all creation, 
gave to Moses and the Israelites and said, this is the name that I will be known by, Yahweh. And it means something. It's, it's hard to get to the bottom of exactly what it is, but it means something along the lines of he is or he will be. Uh, God originally tells Moses, my name is I am who I am. And you will call me Yahweh or something like he is. So when God speaks of himself, he says, I am, and you will call me he is. He's the existing one. The one who exists as opposed to all the other deities and claimants to be God that are not. Yahweh is when Baal is not. Yahweh is when Asherah is not. Yahweh is when Molech is not. Yahweh is when Osiris is not. Yahweh is. And she says, first of all, that we know, I know, that Yahweh, your God, the Israelite God, the God that, that those, these Hebrew people worship, has given you the land. I know that all of this is going to be yours because of him. And what's amazing is they have heard. So the story of what God has done for them has preceded them. It's been about 40 years since they came out of Egypt, so there's been time for this story to travel. And they have heard, they have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Most of you guys know that story. When they, they came out of Egypt, I was just reading this with my, my sons uh, last night, the night before. Uh, when they came up out of Egypt, they uh, made their way to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's armies and chariots and soldiers pinned them in. So that on one side of them was the armies of the king of Egypt, and the other side was an incrossable sea. And God made a way by by parting the Red Sea and allowing the Israelites to go across on dry land so that they could be rescued, so that they could be saved. As Pharaoh's armies pursued them, God collapsed the waters in on Pharaoh's armies, destroying the armies of Egypt. And so this would be, if you, you heard this story in the land of Canaan, in Palestine, Israel, and you heard that these people were coming your way, this was a people that didn't even need to fight their own battles. This was a people whose God went before them and fought on their behalf. And so the whole land, she says, melts away. They also heard what they did to Sihon and Og, the two kings that they battled on the east side of the Jordan River a few years before this event. So she's heard about that as well, how they absolutely routed these two kings. They couldn't stand before them. So whether it's with military might that's directed by God or God just miraculously moving heavens and earth to do something that's unheard of and unseen and unspoken of before this, however they go about it, they seem to be victorious wherever they go. And they're terrified. And she says, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. And what she says in verse, in the end of verse 11 is taking it up a notch. So, again, 
as a Canaanite, she was probably familiar with at least ten or a dozen different deities. And it was very common in the ancient Near East, this, this region that we call the western portion of the Middle East, maybe Egypt, uh, maybe bits of Turkey, we call that the ancient Near East. And it would have been very common. Most of the people were probably either polytheists or henotheists. And a, and a henotheist is a person who worships one god but recognizes the existence of many others. So probably she's at least a henotheist in that she, she recognizes a god, a Canaanite deity, maybe Baal, maybe Asherah, and, and, but she believes that there's other gods that exist, but maybe she just worships one. So for her to say that your god, Yahweh, has given you the land, first of all, is a recognition that, god is, that Yahweh, the god of the Israelites, is real, but he still could only be perhaps one among many. Perhaps a very mighty deity, a very terrible deity, a deity they should be afraid of. But what she says in verse 11 clarifies it even further. She says, For the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. When she says that, she is making a claim to monotheism. She is saying there is no other God like your God. Yahweh is God throughout, from heaven to earth. This expression, the, from heaven above and earth beneath, is an expression that's used three other times in Scripture. Twice in the Ten Commandments, to refer to the Israelites not making an image, not making an idol of anything in heaven above or earth beneath. And the third time, to speak directly to the fact that God is God alone. Yahweh is the only God, and there is no other God in heaven or on earth. And then, on the lips of Rahab, is the fourth occasion. Rahab is saying, I believe that your God is the only one. And what we have is a profound statement of faith here really unlike any statement of faith up to this point in the Old Testament canon. And here it is on the lips of a a Canaanite prostitute in Jericho that's about to be destroyed. And so she says, so please swear to me by your God Yahweh that as I've dealt kindly with you, you'll deal kindly with me. And she asked for protection. She says, I know you guys are coming. I know Yahweh is God, and I know that Yahweh is giving you all this land. What I'm asking for is, I saved your lives. Will you save my life and save my family's life? She lets them down by a rope. They agree to this, this oath. They agree to this contract. She lets them out through the window tells them to to go into the hills in the opposite direction until it's safe to return. And she says to them, or they say to her, here's how we'll know, Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers and all your father's household. In other words, you gather together everyone that belongs to you. Take them into your house. Tie this cord on the window. Remember, her house is built into the wall, which was not uncommon in this period of of history. Um, They'll see the red cord 
when they come, everyone who's in that place will be saved and everyone who's not in that space will be lost. There have been people who've read this, who've studied this, scholars, and they say the Israelites made a mistake here. That the Israelites did something awful and bad. And that's because they say, well, if you read what God commanded them, they were supposed to utterly destroy the Canaanites. And here they're making a a contract, an oath, with a Canaanite prostitute to save her. And some people have argued that this shows that they didn't have faith in God. That they were disobedient to God. And that they made a contract to save her when they were commanded to destroy the Canaanites. But I think that reading is profoundly wrong. Again, we have one of the most powerful testimonies of the goodness and the reality of Yahweh in the Old Testament on the lips of this woman. What we see here is not the Israelites acquiescing to the demands of a prostitute who has sway over their life in this moment. What we have here is a woman who by her very lips has switched her allegiance. In effect, she is no longer a pagan Canaanite. She is a Yahwistic, she is a monotheistic Israelite. She is thrown in her lot with the people of God, and she says, I am with you. Hundreds of years later, Paul, the Apostle Paul, would remind us, not all Israel is from Israel. Romans chapter 9. And what he was saying, in some translations they phrase it this way, not everyone who belongs to Israel, the people of God, is literally descended from the person Israel. That rather, the people of Israel are the people of the promise. And he goes on and he justifies us by the fact that some of the descendants of, uh, of Israel, some of the descendants of Abraham, some of the descendants of Isaac, were not part of the promise. But Rahab has thrown in her lot and her fortunes and her life with the promise of Yahweh. And so she is numbered among them. So when the Israelite spies give an oath to say that we will save you, they are not making an oath with a Canaanite anymore, but they are making an oath with an Israelite. Not by birth, not by genetics, not by family origin, but by worship of the one true God, Yahweh. What we see in Rahab's life is a pattern that you can find throughout the Old Testament. When the Old Testament wants to describe faith, it goes back to the model of faith, Abraham. Abraham was the father of faith. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And what we see in Abraham's life is a simple pattern where God acted. God showed up in Abraham's life, and Abraham responded positively toward God. 
And very often when the Old Testament writers wanted to describe faith, describe a true faith, they used this Abrahamic paradigm of God's action and man's response. And that's exactly what we see here on the lips of Rahab. God has acted in the course of history in what he did at the Red Sea and what he did to the kings of Og and Sidon. Or, um, excuse me, not Sidon. Sidon's on the left. Sihon. Sidon's on the west and Sihon's in the east. He's acted. Word has gotten to Rahab and Rahab has responded in her life by protecting God's people. So not only do we have a verbal testimony of faith, but we see it in her actions. And in the same way, James, the author of the New Testament, would point to her actions as indicative of the kind of saving faith that she had. She's recognized in the book of Hebrews as being righteous for her faith. She follows the paradigm of the father of faith. Abraham. And so they give her this command. Tie this rope around, tie this cord, this scarlet cord around your window, and then we will know when we come in and march, we'll know that this is the house that we protect. Forty years before this, the Israelites were in the land of Egypt. And Yahweh had been speaking to the king of Egypt to allow his people to go and worship him in the wilderness for a few days. And he refused. Time and time again he refused. And so God brought judgments on Egypt, one after another, each more severe than the last, to try to convince the king of Egypt to allow his people to worship him as he commanded And all of it was a view to eventually freeing his people. Because when the last plague, when the last judgment came, it would be so severe that the king of Egypt would say, just be gone, just get out. That last plague, that tenth plague, you most of you are familiar with it, you remember it, God said that he would strike down the firstborn of every house in Egypt. And he would strike down the firstborn animal of every sheep herd and and cattle herd in Egypt. And so he did, except, he said, my people will take the blood of a lamb, they will slaughter a lamb, they will eat it together in their homes, and they will take the blood of that lamb and paint it on their doorpost, a crimson mark, so that when God's destroying angel would come through the land of Egypt, he would see those houses that were marked by a scarlet line and pass over them and visit judgment on the rest. In the same way, now the land of Canaan is under judgment. There's a lot of ethical issues and we'll have opportunity to get into some of them as we move through Joshua, but I'm sure there's lots of ethical questions about Um, the type of warfare that's being described in the book of Joshua. But one thing is very clear is that the land of Canaan in the book of Joshua is under judgment. 
They have been so deep in sin for so long that God says His patience with them has run out. And so they're under judgment. But Rahab's household and Rahab's family are going to be passed over in the judgment because of their faith in the one true God. Just like the Israelites who trusted Yahweh when they were in Egypt, did as He commanded and marked their doorposts with the blood of the Lamb, were passed over and spared the judgment on Egypt. So Rahab and her family are going to be spared the judgment on the land of the Canaanites. Because of their, her faithfulness in the God of the Israelites. What Rahab reminds us too is that our current situation is really no different. Like the land of Canaan, our world is under judgment. Our entire world is poised for judgment. God has promised it. Even as He promised it to Abraham hundreds of years before His people inherited the land of Canaan, that He promised to Abraham that it would be true, God has promised to us that our world is under judgment also. He made it certain when He sent His Son, Jesus Christ. He took the form of a man and became in every way like us, yet was without sin, went to a cross and took upon Himself the death that we rightly deserve. So that, just like the Israelites could find a way of salvation in the midst of judgment, and so Rahab was able to find a salvation in the midst of judgment, God has provided a means of salvation in the midst of judgment for us. There is a day of judgment coming. It's promised that this Christ who death could not hold, who rose again from the dead, and is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, will come again to judge the living and the dead. There will be a judgment. We don't know when. He is very clear with his followers that he doesn't know the day or the time. It wasn't his to know. It wasn't his to give. But He is coming, whether this afternoon or in 2,000 afternoons, whether in 2 million afternoons, He will return. There is a pending judgment on this earth. And when the King of glory, Jesus Christ, returns with those who have gone before Him and following Him, and and those who have gone before us in following Him, and, and, and with His angels and with His his mighty warriors, and He comes to, to pass judgment on this earth. He will look down on this earth and those of us whose hearts are marked by the blood of the Lamb, by the blood of Jesus Christ offering His life on the cross, will be passed over in that judgment, though we rightly deserve it.
we're reminded in Rahab, Rahab, this, this pagan worshiping Canaanite prostitute who is saved by virtue of her faith. Reminds us that no matter how awful we think we are, what we think we've done, what we think our past has been, no matter how unworthy we think we are, there is a place for us in God's salvation if we turn to Him in faith. We can be a foreigner. We can speak a foreign language. We can sound funny. We can... We cannot speak the language correctly. We could have had a history of worshiping the false deities, false gods or goddesses. We could have a, a, a history of being antagonistic toward God's people. Our life could have been filled with hatred of God, but we could have committed wicked acts like Rahab did. And yet God in His mercy will rescue us on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ if we put our faith in Him. What Rahab also reminds us is that though the land of Canaan was under judgment, God's greater purposes was to draw a people to Himself. We might imagine that even as the, the city of Nineveh, do you remember the city of Nineveh? Jonah went and preached to the city of Nineveh and preached that they were going to be destroyed, but the city of Nineveh, as one man, repented of their sins and turned to the God of the universe, and so the city was saved. We might think to ourselves, and I think we would be right, that if only all of Jericho had repented the way Rahab had repented, they might have been saved and numbered among the Israelites. God desires to draw a people to Himself. The story of Rahab is, is one of war and military intrigue and judgment and a miraculous salvation. It's also a story of mission. It's a story of the Gospel, the good news of what God was up to in these Israelites and a story of the good news of Jesus Christ can can be pushed out and can rescue even the most unlikely of people. People who, who cross national borders, who, 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 who aren't Americans, people who don't worship like we worship, but yet God is calling out to them and offering them the salvation that He's offered us. And God is spreading a witness of Himself before us. That all it took for Rahab's salvation was an encounter with the people of God. God had been at work by His Holy Spirit before they even arrived in Jericho. And that encounter wound up being the salvation of many, many people in Rahab's household. We read later in the, the book of Joshua, they did in fact save her. In fact, she's numbered among the Israelites at the end of the book, and she becomes an ancestor of King David and an ancestor of Jesus Christ. And so this Gentile, this pagan, this Canaanite prostitute 
becomes a great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus Christ. Not because of her past, not because of her fantastic deeds, not because of her goodness or her inherent righteousness, but because of her faith in God. Do we believe that that God's work is advancing before us? Or or, or do we we think that the the fields are entirely unplowed? I I think sometimes we we think that uh, mission work and and evangelism and, and, and proclaiming the good news about God is hard because we think that Nothing is happening right now, and so we're kind of going up against a brick wall. What, what Rahab's story reminds us is that we're never going up against a brick wall, that there is a God who is marching in front of us, softening hearts and preparing room for himself wherever we would go. And so when we are faithful enough to go, we very often might find hearts that are already receptive to hear the truth about Jesus Christ. Because God's message and God's work has preceded us, even as it preceded these two Israelite spies. It reminds us that when God is for us, when God is on our side, we can be the the most blundering spies and still wind up with our lives and the intel that we were looking for. In other words, these, these two dudes should have been dead, right? These two dudes should have been dead. This was not SEAL Team 6. This, these guys should have been dead, but God protected them. God protected them despite their ineptitude, despite their um, inefficiencies, despite their lack of covert skills. God protected them and gave them the information that they needed to bring back to Joshua and the other Israelites. And so even when we are unprepared, or very often for a lot of us, we think we're prepared, but we're not really, God often works through our faithfulness, and God often at work is at work to protect us despite our inability. And so... Don't let our inabilities and our weaknesses and, and our um, lack, whether it's financial lack or educational lack or experiential lack or however you feel like you don't measure up, don't let that stop you from being bold for the cause of Christ because God is at work. God's hand is at work despite you. And we should expect God to be a rescuing God. I think too often we don't, and and I'm confessing this myself, I think too often we think that God's not a rescuing God. We know He is, but we don't believe He is. We just assume that, that, all right, I I got this message, I got this hope, I have this gospel truth of, of Jesus Christ, and I've repented of my sins, and I'm walking with Him. But, but those guys over there, they're just hard. Those guys over there, they're, they're just, they've got their backs turned squarely against Jesus. 
Those people, they they don't want to hear. They're just going to make fun of me. They they don't want to have anything to do with this. And we've forgotten that our God is a rescuing God. Jericho was set for destruction. This is a three days out. Three days out, they're, they're about to go and take this city. They're just doing like a final reconnaissance on it. It's about to go under. And God says, but wait, there are some that I want for me there. Even in the face of imminent destruction, God is a rescuing God. And He will save people for Himself. Do we believe that? I've talked a lot already this year, and I'll keep talking about it, but but I want 2016 to be a, a year that we kind of turn the tables a little bit on our on our inward focus, and we become much more external, and we push out with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think to do that, we have to recognize that there are people out there in this city and in this world that we think are completely at odds with anything that God would want to do. And they're maybe exactly the kind of people that God wants to say because our God is a rescuing God who loves people no matter what they look like, no matter what they sound like, no matter... Um, how they dress or how they walk or what crazy, awful, horrible deeds they might have done before that point, God is calling them to himself. And when we trust in that, when we remember that, it gives us courage and it gives us confidence to move forward for the sake of Jesus. And so, are we going to be those kind of people today? I wanted to get into our lie a little bit, but I, I think that that's going to be... a. I think that that's going to be a little bit of a distraction from our, from our bigger point. So if you're curious about her lie, we can talk about her lie um, offline. Because she is, she's a liar, right? Um, and so there's a lot of debate about whether that was ethical or not. But I think at the bottom of the line, the bottom line for Rahab is the author isn't concerned about her lie. That doesn't make it right. That doesn't make it wrong. But the author is concerned about the faith that she demonstrates toward the Israelites, however perfectly or imperfectly. And what we see about the God of the universe, Yahweh, the God who sends His Son to die for us, is that He credits faith. However small, however imperfect, however weak, He credits faith to our account as righteousness. So that Christ's goodness and Christ's righteousness in a sinless life offered up on the cross for us can be counted to your account and to my account. So that on that day of judgment, when Christ comes, He will look at us and He will see a people that have been cleansed by His blood. And not just us, but millions of people He doesn't come real fast. Millions of people, maybe billions of people that are out there who have yet to know Him that are just waiting to be reached by a word of His activity and His goodness in the face of judgment like Rahab. Let's pray. Father, remind us that we were once people under judgment, that we were people who the wrath of God rested on, was was coming upon, who who deserved your judgment, who 
have sinned and we have fallen short of your glory and so we deserve every bit of your wrath. And from the midst of that destruction, you grabbed us and you saved us and you rescued us and brought us to yourself. Help us to not forget that, God. Help us to not forget how deeply mired in sin we were. Teach us that. Whether we were 3 or 13 or 30 when we came to know your grace, remind us of the depth of our depravity and how you pulled us Pulled us out of a pit of despair and sin. Don't let us forget that, God, lest we think to ourselves that you're not able or not willing to do the same for the people that we know in our lives, the people who surround us, the people that feel to us to be so far from you that they wouldn't respond. And God, be going ahead of us in this city, Cleveland, and, and in Northeast Ohio, and in, and in the United States, and in this world. Go Go in front of us, God, as we believe you are. We pray, God, that you would go in front of us and be softening hearts, be tilling soil. And may we be faithful, God. May we be faithful to go so that even in our, in our bumbling idiocy, we might find Rahabs who come to you in faith. But God, give us more confidence and give us more more faith even than those spies. To boldly proclaim the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ. Knowing that you draw all people to yourself. In the risen Son, Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.